But okay, uh, Genesis. And we're, I know that we're kind of doing two things on a Wednesday evening, starting with the, the uh, Sunday message and then turning to Genesis. But someday, maybe, we'll have a Sunday evening service as well, and then we can kind of sing and pray and then talk about the Sunday message application, and then we can also do our Wednesday thing. So we don't have to do two things on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday night. But dreams, you know, we can just dream and, and hope. Um, but if you take your Bible and open to Genesis, as we uh, say week after week, we're looking at how God is going about saving the world and what he wants from us. And so Genesis 1 through 11 tells us the problem in the world. It exposes what's wrong and uh, where the solution, where we're not going to find the solution, and Genesis chapter 12 begins giving us hope and showing us how God is going to fix the problems in the world, starting with what God's doing with Abram. And these stories are important, the stories about uh, Abram, about Isaac, about Jacob, about Joseph, because they're uh, not only telling us history, they're also here to help us know how to think. Uh, this is how God works. This is how the world works. This is what God is looking for. This is what we should value. This is what we should hate. These are our stories to help us understand our life. And though we've only gotten through uh, chapters 12 through 14 so far, I wonder uh, what is standing out to you? What has stood out to you as we looked at uh, Genesis 1 through 14? Yeah, this great promise about seed, land, and blessing that uh, God makes to Abram. Yeah, yeah. From the very beginning, God gives us hope by choosing very broken, clearly flawed individuals. Um, it's not about how great Abram is. Uh, it's about how good God is. It's clear that man can't save himself, that God has a plan, that God is gracious. One thing that has stood out to me is that uh, just because God is acting to save doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. And we're in chapter 15, and I just uh, want you to think for a minute about Abram's life so far. Because first of all, uh, he is old when God calls him. So he is 75 years old when God calls him. He's lived a lot of his life before God chooses him and sends him to Ur. And he is the one that God is choosing to change the world, but he has not had it easy. Uh, what does uh, Moses tell us about his wife at the very beginning? Genesis 11, the end of Genesis 11. It's the first thing he says about Sarai. She is barren. And in those days, that meant people would have looked at them as cursed. Um, he, has, he has to move from a more sophisticated place to a much more out-of-the-way place. So uh, God asking him to move from Ur to Canaan is maybe like asking um, someone to move from New York City to Podunk, West Virginia. And in uh, doing so, he basically is being asked to leave all his primary support systems. So even now, if you had to live by yourself in a foreign country where you didn't know the language, you didn't know the customs, you didn't know um, how things worked, that would be challenging. And uh, it was much more so 
in Abram's day. Someone's described this as comparable to being asked to go colonize the moon when God asked Abram to move. People didn't, they didn't have like the internet. They, people didn't move like this in those days. And uh, so this is all challenging, but then what? What is the first thing that happens when he gets to the land that God promised? In Genesis 12, there is a, a famine and this is, I think, hard for us to even appreciate because we have so much access to food. So we read famine, and it's, it doesn't even really, doesn't really connect. But what does the word famine mean if you had to define famine? What's that? Empty, that's a good word, yeah. Who's Googling it right now? It means severe shortage of food resulting in violent hunger and starvation and death. So we get upset when the Wi-Fi isn't working very well. Um, but imagine not having food. Life gets scary when people don't have access to things like food. Um, I read about a famine in ancient Egypt this week, and they talk about things like people resorting to cannibalism and eating their own children. Um, because of a lack of food. So going through a famine is traumatic, definitely traumatic. But there's more. What comes next after, the, after Abram leaves Canaan and he goes to Egypt? He's so scared when he gets to Egypt that he's going to be killed because of his wife Sarai that he asks her to say she's his sister and allows her to get married to someone else. And we give Abram a hard time for that, of course, and we're like, how could you do that? And I think that's a good question, but I just want you to think about being in a place where you're that scared or you feel that vulnerable. And I don't think he necessarily should have because of God's promise, but I'm just talking about his circumstances. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you felt um, that kind of fear because you just felt so vulnerable um, the only time <laughs> I was really young, and I, I can think of two times. Uh, when we first moved to South Africa, everybody, you know, one thing that happens when people leave a country is they have to justify leaving that country. So when you meet them, they have to talk about how terrible it was in their home country. And so when, before we moved to South Africa, a lot of people had left South Africa. And whenever we would meet them, they would just tell us about how dangerous it was. And, and so uh, I believe them, and it is dangerous, I mean, definitely. But I was young, and so I kind of thought it felt like you, um, your car breaks down and you're dead. I mean, it's just over. And so we were driving back from Durban in a, a van that we borrowed, and um, we got a flat tire, and it was like a, one of the, it was a Volkswagen, so I didn't know where the spare tire was. Apparently, it's underneath the car, but I didn't know that then. And so I was just sure my whole family's gone. Um, so uh, I was on the side of the road, just smiling as big as I could, and and uh, waving at everybody who was going by because I thought, if you're going to kill me, I want you to kill me smiling. Um, and now I realize that was very foolish and embarrassing. Um, but that was one time I felt vulnerable. The other time was when we were in um, college and we did a missions trip in uh, South Central. So I was from 
the country, uh, you know, kind of a village or town in Pennsylvania. And so I had only seen South Central on TV, and, and uh, I was I was definitely a, a little nervous. Um, but Abram was in a much scarier position than that. This was true, truly scary. And so uh, he's had God's promise, and yet he had to, like, move and leave New York City to go to the moon. He uh, ha has experienced a famine when he got there. So, like, this, this is not just, like, my um, favorite peanut butter is not at the grocery store. This is, like, we don't have food. Uh, people are starving. He's had to live like a refugee. He's been vulnerable. And what about Sarah? She had to get married to another man <laughs> who was like a, a, a king. And then, of course, God rescues them, and Abram gets called before the king of Egypt, and he's not super happy with Abram, but he sends him away with all kinds of stuff. And in an amazing turn of events, Abram leaves Egypt as a result wealthy, very wealthy, but that wealth becomes a problem in chapter 13. And what happens? He starts experiencing conflict with his closest relative who made the journey with him from Ur to Canaan to Egypt and back again. And in the end, Lot leaves him and also leaves the promised land, which is hard. If you're a parent and you feel like your child is going in the wrong uh, direction, um, that's difficult. And Lot going towards Sodom was not good. And I don't know if Abram knew that, but if he did, that would have been very difficult. And after that, God meets him and gives him a promise, but Abram doesn't really have much to show for it. I mean, he sort of does. He has a lot of things, but he doesn't have land. He doesn't have descendants. And he's living in a pretty dangerous place because what happens in chapter 14? There's, uh, there are kings who go to battle against these other kings. And these are all from... Kings is maybe a strong word, but they're like tribes, you know, warring tribes, basically. And um, this is kind of interesting. I hadn't seen this before, but if you look at chapter 14, verse 1, the first king is from where? In the days of Amphrathel, Raphael, the king of Shinar. And if you go back to chapter 11, verse 2, um, what happened previously in Shinar? the Tower of Babel. So anyway, this is the king of the people who lived in the place that shook their fist at God. But there's this battle going on, and eventually Abram's nephew is kidnapped and made a prisoner of war. And Abram has to go fight and battle against these kings to get him back. And so just think about all the things that have happened to Abram in these couple chapters since God called him at 75. Famine, a refugee, wife married to someone else, rags to riches is probably a strong way of putting it, but uh, riches at least, family conflict, like serious family conflict, nephew made a prisoner of war, you going to war, and I don't know, but what do you think that tells you about the way God's accomplishing his salvation plan? Uh, it tells me he's going to get it done but it's going to be a ride. It's going to be quite a ride. It wasn't just, I choose Abram, and now everything is smooth. There were a lot of hard things, and good as well. And chapter 14 ends on a high note. After Abram goes to war and wins, which is incredible, he rescues Lot, and he meets with two kings. And one of them is a godly king, 
and the other one is a pagan king. And the godly king gives us a glimpse into God's future plan. His name is Melchizedek. He becomes important in the Bible because he is a priest king from Jerusalem who blesses Abram and seems to teach him something. And so if you look at verse 18 of chapter 14, uh, he describes, Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And then in verse 22, how does, God, how does Abram describe God? He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And, and knowing that helps Abram fulfill God's purpose for him because the pagan king comes and he offers Abram all kinds of prosperity. And this is almost like a test. I don't know how big the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were exactly, but apparently the king who defeated Sodom and Gomorrah took all their possessions when he did. And so he made a raid and he carried off as much as he could from those two cities. And when Abram went and defeated that king, he got everything back. And the king of Sodom was so happy to get his people back that he said to Abram, just give me the people and you can keep all the stuff. And so here Abram is offered all the possessions of two cities. And even if they weren't very large, that's a lot of stuff. And he says no, which was a big act of faith for Abram and tells us he's moving forward. Um, because he did it for a reason. Abram wouldn't take Sodom's help because he knew if he did, Sodom would want to take credit for what God did for Abram in the future. And Abram knew that God's goal was to glorify himself by saving through Abram and using his seed to reverse the curse in a way that makes it clear to the whole world that he alone is the one who did it. And so we're pretty excited for Abram and where this is heading at the beginning of chapter 15. But the truth is, we uh, still have a problem because Abram still has no offspring. And if you remember, God made three big promises to Abram, land, seed, and blessing. And he was tested in regards to the land and he failed, but he got a second chance and he did better. And we see here that God's gonna have no problem giving Abram and his descendants the land because Abram's gone to battle with the most powerful kings in the land and he's won. But now what about the seed? Because he still has no descendants. And that's not just a problem for Abram, that's a problem for the whole world. Because how is Abram going to bring blessing to the world if he doesn't have descendants? That's a big question, and God's taking a long time to answer. And uh, we're seeing that God doesn't have a problem taking a long time. <laughs> He's not always about quick sol solutions. We really like efficient, and God isn't always as interested in efficiency as you are. He is orchestrating history and even your life to teach you something about how salvation works and to help you have an actual relationship with him. And he's doing that in Abram's life, and we get a huge insight into how salvation works as the chapter opens with God coming to Abram. So Genesis 15, verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now stop right there. You're having devotions. What just happened? Because that, 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 that verse should make you stop. Because it tells you something significant that's kind of easy to overlook. Because when you hear the phrase, the word of the Lord, what do you think about? I think about the Bible. I think about a book. Something written down. But this is the first time we read about the word of the Lord in the Bible. And it's coming to someone how? in a vision. And so it's like he sees the word of the Lord. He doesn't simply say that Yahweh came and spoke. 
But the word of the Lord came in a vision to him and said something. And that should just get you thinking. Why does it say it like that? Because he could have just said Yahweh came and spoke. And, but he says the word of the Lord came and, and, and said something. And as we keep reading the Bible, we're going to find this phrase a lot. The word of God being described the way you would describe a person. And that's just a very common way of describing how God shows up in the prophets. And I think is setting you up for John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But here in uh, chapter 15, Abraham is like a prophet in, or he's like a king in chapter 14, and he's like a prophet here. And it's God who's pursuing Abram, which should tell you something, because the whole Bible is uh, God pursuing man, not man pursuing God. And this is no different. And what does God say to Abram? The first thing, fear not. Don't be afraid. And that becomes like the most common command in scripture. <laughs> God doesn't want his people to be afraid. And I think this is the first time we see it. But why would God have to tell Abram that? Why would he have to tell him, fear not? If you just went to war against, um, you just took out four kings or five kings, however there many there were, what, what, would, what could you be scared about? Yeah, there's probably a target on your, on, on your back. Um, so he has reasons to fear just where he's living. Um, but looking forward, we see he has reasons to uh, fear as well because he has no descendants. But what encouragement does God give Abram? He says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So first he says, I'm your shield, which means he is what for Abram? Protection. And then he says, your reward shall be very great. So... Uh, that's hope. He's saying, you trusted me and didn't take anything from the king of Sodom, but don't worry, I will reward you. You have hope. Which I think is helpful for understanding what's going on with fear so often. Um, why are people afraid? So the Bible helps you understand how God's saving, but the Bible also helps you understand people. And God here is coming to Abram. He recognizes that Abram's afraid, and he's giving a solution. But his solution helps us understand what causes people to fear so that when we disciple people, we can look. And, and if they're struggling with fear, okay, these might be two reasons they're struggling with fear. People are often afraid because they look at the present and feel insecure, vulnerable, like they lack protection. And sometimes people are afraid because they look at the future and feel hopeless. They feel unsure. And so how do you overcome that? Uh, it's God's God's solution for Abram's fear isn't um, necessarily a change of circumstances immediately, but it is uh, for Abram to know God. God is a present help, and God uh, is going to keep his promises and give him a future reward. And I know that God's talking to Abram about something specific, but do we have reason to be confident that God is that for us as well? Like, if you struggle with worry, how can, this, how can this statement, these truths, encourage you? Well, 
God is a shield for you as well. Like God is a shield. God is present with you and he is committed to your good. We're going to see in Luke that doesn't mean that necessarily you're not going to suffer, but it does mean that he's going to accomplish good for you. Um, it's nice as you look at, as a Christian, as you look at your life and you see something scary, you absolutely know, like you rock solid know that God is going to do you good. He's with you. He's your shield. You, it, he might, it might be a hard good or it might be an easy good, but it's going to be good because he's made that promise and he's present in your life. And so all those thoughts where you're like, oh, it's going to be bad, it's going to be bad, it's going to be bad, they're not true. So you don't have to spend a lot of time thinking on lies because if you're thinking on lies, you're not going to end up in the right place. So when those thoughts come where like, oh, it's going to be bad, it's going to be terrible, it's going to be terrible, you can say to yourself, that's not true. God is my protector, and God has promised, Romans 8, 28, this is a promise, all, all things are going to work together for good for those who love him. And so it might not be the good that I want. It might be a hard good, but God knows what's good better than I do for me. And so I can trust that he's going to be able to accomplish that good. Just like he said to Abram, he's Abram's shield in the Psalms. We're going to see he is our shield as well. And he's also got a great reward for us. And so uh, when we feel hopeless, we uh, go back to the word of God and say, but that's not true. I do have hope, and this is my hope. Um, but that doesn't always make trusting him easy. Just that's, that's uh, part of the joy of it. It's, a, it's like a relationship. <laughs> God's like, I keep saying lately, he's not technology where you're like, do, 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 and everything, he just out, he does it just the way you want him to do it, like he's some sort of uh, AI or something where you type in the right program and out pops your answer. God is a person. And so he wants to have a relationship with you and uh, wants you to enjoy a relationship with him. And that's part of why life is the way it is and part of why it's not always easy to trust him. And even if we're trusting God in some areas, there might be other areas where we struggle. And that's uh, another thing we learn about fear here. You can trust God in so many ways and yet really struggle in others because Abram's just had a huge breakthrough. I mean, a huge breakthrough. He just trusted God enough to go to war against four kings, and at the end of that, he trusted God enough to turn down great prosperity. But he is struggling now to believe that God's going to keep his promise about the seed. And that's just welcome to being a human. You know, uh, we, um, our lives, unfortunately, sometimes are very divided. I think that's something that sin does. It kind of separates us into compartments and so we can have it really good in one area and really be missing it in another area and that's part of why we need uh, Christian friends to help us be whole you know not so divided and Abram's a little divided here because he just accomplished something great and trusted God but now he's discouraged and you can see that in the way he responds to God in verse 2 he says oh Lord my God or oh Lord God what will you give me for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You say that I'm going to have a reward, but what will it be? Because I'm childless. And that word childless is intense. It could be translated stripped, like a tree that's been stripped of its leaves. It's just barren. 
And Abram's bothered by this. I'm not, I don't know if he's blaming God, but he definitely recognizes God's sovereignty and is asking him a question. He says in verse 3, And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, God, you're saying don't be afraid, but look, look, don't you see my situation? And this is probably the reason Abram's afraid. It's because he feels like he's been waiting so long, and God hasn't kept his promise, which is another reason people fear, right? It's been so long. God, you've said you're going to do this. you said you're going to do this, but I don't see it. And how does God respond to Abram? Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And so it's like, Moses is like, now you look. Abram told God, behold, look at my situation. And if you look at Abram's situation, it does look one way. But now it, Moses is like, look at the word of the Lord. God's going to speak. And he's going to tell us what's real. And what does he say? This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. I saw someone translated this. This one shall not be heir to you. Rather, the one that goes out from your own body, he shall be heir to you. And since we're always looking for the seed, this is a key passage. He's going to come from Abram's body. But just because God hasn't kept his promise yet doesn't mean that God's forgotten his promise. And then God takes Abram outside and gives him assurance. And he says, and he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. You can almost imagine, like, I'll wait. Um, and then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. But I like that, look to heaven. It's Abram's like, God, I, look down at my situation. And Abram's like, now, Abram, I want you to look up at the stars. You're going to have a son, and he's going to have a son. And in the end, you're going to have lots and lots of offspring. And in the end, they're going to have so many uh, children that you're not going to be able to count them. And this is kind of sweet, because if you look at chapter 13, God told Abram, uh, I'm going to make your offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, his offspring could be counted. And now he says, look to the stars. So it's like, Abram, look down, look up, because heaven and earth are designed to witness what a great thing I'm going to do for you. But Abram still hasn't seen it. All he's done is heard it. And so right now, Abram's got this difficult situation. I'm old. I have no descendant. It's been a long time, but I do have the word of God. And here's the test. What does he do? Does he allow his circumstance to dominate the way he thinks and feels, or does he allow the word of God, what God says, to dominate the way he thinks and feels? And that's the test that you always face. And we see how Abram responds. And this is one of the most important verses in all the Bible, Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And what does he believe? The Lord, but what does he believe specifically? He believes God's word about the seed, God's promise. He believes God's generosity. And this is huge. If, it, if this were a movie or a play, I would imagine Abram standing there with like this huge spotlight on him, because finally we're seeing someone who's trusting that God is as good as he says he is. And if the Bible were a symphony, like this great concert, after this verse there would be the clashing of cymbals, or whatever you do in a symphony to make sure everyone knows this is a huge moment. And it's a huge moment not just for Abram, but for us, because it explains how salvation works. God makes a promise about the seed. Abram trusts that promise. And how does God respond? He counts that or credits that to Abram as righteousness. And that's going to be a foundational verse for the whole Bible. 
because it helps us understand how salvation works. How were people in the Old Testament saved? How are people in the New Testament saved? The same way, the same exact way, the same exact way. It's not two different ways of salvation. This is what Paul says in Romans 4. He's talking to people who think they're saved by being good, keeping the law, and Paul says, no, look at Abraham. What does the scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That, I mean, the Bible is just shocking. Let me say that last part again. I can't go by it. But believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Do you understand? God is a judge who justifies the ungodly. Do you understand why that's shocking? When you hear that, that you should, that should be, that's like, should feel some tension. Because what a judge who justifies the ungodly normally, what do you call that judge? A bad judge, right? You can't justify the ungodly, but we just said God justifies the ungodly. How does he do it? Well, of course, it's because of Christ, ultimately, Christ's righteousness. But this is, this is, this is how salvation works. We're saved the same way Abram was, not through our own efforts, but by us trusting God's promises to provide salvation through the seed who we know as Jesus. And um, I, I like the way that Moses has set this up um, because you have to ask, um, why does he delay until chapter 15 to talk about Abram's faith? I don't know if you ever thought about that because um, he already made a pretty big step back in Genesis 13 or 12. Like he left his home, he went about 1,800 miles to go to the promised land when God told him to go. So why does he de delay until Genesis 15 to say, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? And I think probably, this is Walt Kaiser actually who says this, but I think he's right, that chapters 12 and 13 and 14, the focus is kind of on the land, God giving Abram the land. But in chapter 15, the focus is on the seed, not the land, but the seed. And uh, so where is Abram's focus here? His focus is on the seed. And why does the text take so long to talk about this, Abram's faith? It's because he wants us to focus on Abram's trust in God's promise about the seed. God said, a son is coming from your own body who will be your heir. And Abram says, I believe it. And God says, you know what? I reckon that to be justification. And what did Abram believe God about here? He believed God's promise about the seed. So what did Abraham believe before? Yeah, he did believe before the promise about the land and all of that. But the writer delays this statement about justification until this point so we don't miss the connection. Moses wants to lock in your mind. How was Abram saved? He believes in God's seed promise. And God credits it to him as righteousness. And now that Abram's confessed his faith in the seed... God formalizes his commitment to give him the land by making a covenant. And that's what comes next. And you remember that a covenant is a specific kind of formal relationship that God graciously enters into to move a salvation plan forward. And we saw the Noahic covenant. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And it starts in verse 7. Moses writes, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now stop there. I wonder, does that sound like anything you've read anywhere else? So one cool thing about the Pentateuch, this is good to know, is you're supposed to read through it a lot of times. 
And so when you read through it a lot of times, that helps the later parts will help you read the earlier parts, and the earlier parts will help you read the later parts. And so um, think, let me read this again and see if you can think about where a phrase like this might be found. I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Exodus, yeah, yeah, that's right, Exodus 20. I always hate questions like that because you're like, oh, there's a big Bible, you know. I mean, it could be found in a lot of places. Um, and the really good professor's like, no, not quite that, not quite. No, no, but no, this is simple. Exodus 20, after God saves Israel, brings them to Mount Sinai, he meets with Moses, and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so I think the reason there's uh, like this echo is because you're supposed to come into the Ten Commandments with the story of Abram in your mind. And uh, God's about to enter into a covenant with Israel, and at the doorway of that covenant, he says pretty much the same thing he said to Abram, which means it's like, stop, look back, and remember how Abram was justified. I'm about to give you the law, but I'm the same God. Abram was justified by faith. This is how you're, just, you're going to be justified. So this law that I'm giving you is not how you're going to be saved, but how you should live as saved people. And so in Genesis 15, God reminds Abram of his call on his life. I brought you into this land to possess it. And in verse 8, Abram's back to asking about the land. He says, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And what strikes you about him asking that question? For me, what strikes me is like real life. <laughs> he just believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Next statement, but God, how do I know that this is actually going to happen? That's real life. He, he believes God, but he's got questions, and you can understand why. And so the Lord gives him an assurance in a way that seems very strange to us. Look at verse 8. God says to him, so Abram's like, how can I know? And God's like, okay, I got a good plan. Go get a heifer that's three years old and a female goat that's three years old and a turtle dove and a pigeon. He's like, uh, <laughs> all right. And uh, that kind of response from God would surprise us, but it would have been less surprising to Abram because this is a way that people in their day entered into a covenant with someone else. That's why they talk, they talk about cutting a covenant. It was based on this ritual. And whenever you're reading about someone else's ritual, this is important, especially as we get to Leviticus, whenever you read about someone else's ritual, it always seems strange. So um, if we had, we do have rituals. And if we wrote them down and put them in a book and people like 2,000 years from now read them, they would be like, those people are kind of weird. So if you just think about a wedding, and if you wrote all the rituals people perform in a wedding, like what is that thing about something blue or, you know, I, all this stuff that people do, or um, and how people get engaged, or, I mean, there's a, a, how we do contracts. But it has meaning this ritual. And so Abram gets these animals, and then what does he do? He cuts them in half, verse 10. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. So I think of this old man, you know, just sawing through this heifer. That sounds very difficult. And uh, the idea was that you would cut it in half, pull the heifer over there, and um, you would make a path with one part on this side, one part on the other. And then you would walk through that path with the person you are making a covenant with as a way of saying, look, we are committing to doing what we promised with one another, 
And if one of us doesn't keep our promise, this is what should happen to us. It's like you would look at the animals and say, so be it to me if I fail to keep this commitment that I'm uh, making with you, which is pretty graphic. You know, to do, if we did that at a wedding now, that would uh, definitely be different. <laughs> it actually might be good for some folks. Um, now nobody will ask me to marry them. So you want to get married? Go give it a go. Get a heifer. Make sure it's three years old, though. Um, now, if only one person walked through, then that was the uh, that was the only one responsible, and that's going to be uh, significant. But verse 10, Abram cuts the animals, except for the birds, I don't know why. <laughs> and he protects the car- carcasses from the birds of prey in verse 11. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away, which kind of cements the whole scene in reality. This is not fairy tale. Uh, this happened. So it's kind of interesting because the whole passage started out by saying the word of the Lord appeared to Abram in a vision. So it's like, are we still in the vision? I, I don't know. But it does feel like this mention of Abram chasing away the birds of prey at least it's intended to say it's, it's literally happening or we're supposed to read it like that. Um, and we get a sense there's a process to all this, even time elapsed. You don't get the animals magically and cut them in half magically. And when you do, if you're out there in the wild, there's going to be birds of prey trying to get them. And I don't know, maybe I'm making this part up, but it kind of adds intensity to the scene as you think about this like 75 or 80-year-old man. I don't know how old he is now. Um, chasing the birds of prey away with like a big stick or something. This covenant's very important, and it's like Abram is coming under attack as he waits for God to enter it. And when God does, he does in a way that makes clear he's taking full responsibility. Because look at verse 12. Um, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So Abram's sleeping, and it's a deep sleep, and it falls upon him. There's something supernatural about this. And we haven't heard this line before about a dreadful and great darkness, but we have read about someone sleeping. Can you think of anybody else who was sleeping in uh, the earlier parts of Genesis? Back in Genesis 2, there's somebody who sleeps and wakes up and his whole life changed. (laughs) Um, Adam. Some guys kind of wish that would still happen. Whoa, there's a wife. Um... God's, uh, I think here, God's connecting Abram back to Adam. And so he's like, this is the one who's going, I'm going to use to accomplish what I started with Adam. And again, it's God who's going to accomplish it. And he begins to tell Abram the next stage in the, uh, of the plan in verse 13. We got started a couple minutes late today, so I'm going to go to 8.05, because um, I have to at least get through chapter 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God explains why he's not giving them the land right away, and it has to do with God's patience. And this is going to be important as we get to Joshua, because when we read Joshua, we're going to read about God punishing the Canaanites, and a lot of times people think God's being so harsh, and they're like, oh, I can't believe this. But we see here that he's super merciful, and he gives them a lot of time, and his own people are actually going to have to wait somewhere else and suffer for a while before he executes this judgment on the Canaanites, because this is only going to happen 
when it's totally fair for it to happen. And of course, we just met Melchizedek, who was a king in Jerusalem and was godly. So even though the Bible doesn't tell us all the details, there is some kind of witness for Yahweh in Canaan at this time. And if you think about what we learned about the Canaanites, besides Sodom and Gomorrah, almost every other Canaanite we've met is, is, is like as good as Abram or, or better. So we have allies of Abram. We have Abimelech, who seems to fear God. Later, we'll meet Ephron and the Hittites, who are Hethites, who um, show integrity. Later, Tamar. And yet, in spite of these positive signs, God knows they're not going to listen, and he has a plan, and he shares that plan with Abram in detail, which, of course, should have been an encouragement to the Israelites because they, uh, you know, before they went into battle, they could have known. God's been planning this for kind of a long time, down to the year when it's supposed to happen. And God actually tells them uh, a lot. He says, Abram's descendants are going to live as sojourners for 400 years. They're going to be enslaved and oppressed. Yahweh would inflict judgment on that nation for oppressing his people. They're going to emerge from their 400-year exile with great wealth. Abram would live a long life and die in peace. And that he tells them the reason the land wasn't going to be taken at this point was because the people's sins hadn't reached its limit yet and um, become intolerable to God. And so uh, this Saturday, we're going to have a men's breakfast and talk about trusting God. And we don't understand everything about God's sovereignty. But there's no, clear, there's no question <laughs> from the beginning of the Bible, we serve a God who is sovereign. Like, these people are responsible, clearly. That's why they're going to be judged. And yet God has a plan, and that plan extends all the way down to the details. And he's going to accomplish it. And uh, he's going to provide salvation for his people and judgment for his enemies. And from the beginning, chapter 15, he's making it clear he's the one who's going to do it. If you look at verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And I guess it's better to translate this smoking fire pot with a flaming torch. It's one thing. But I don't know why. Um, he doesn't really interpret the image here, does he? He just tells us about it. But maybe what, what could a smoking fire pot with a flaming torch, if you were Israelites, remind you of? Um, maybe it would remind you of the cloud and the fire that was leading them. And so this is a, a clear representation of God. Um, and it has to be because Abram's sleeping. And so we see God is the one walking through the path between the animals, which means he's the one who's going to be responsible for this covenant. And that's the main takeaway. This is not depending on Abraham. This is all God. And God explains that in verse 18. Moses writes, On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt all throughout. <laughs> a lot of names we can barely pronounce. But uh, none of those groups are around any longer, except for who? <laughs> Abram's descendants, the Israelites, and the reason is because God does what he says he's going to do. And uh, like Abram, we need to trust him, and if we trust God's word, even in the middle of difficult circumstances, and even though it feels sometimes like it's taking a long time, you know what God's going to do? He's going to credit that faith to us as, and he does credit that faith to us as, as righteousness, uh, which, of course, is why we can stand before him and worship 
with confidence. But thanks, guys.